Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way part-time pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the part-time pilot audio ground school podcast hello 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 welcome to the audio ground school podcast i'm your host nick smith founder and creator of part-time pilot and this is the podcast where we give you free audio ground school from the part-time pilot online ground school thank you guys all for joining me in today's episode is going to be episode number 72 and it's december 18th so we're just one week away from christmas for all those that that celebrate Christmas. If you don't celebrate Christmas, I'm sure you, you're celebrating some sort of winter solstice-based holiday. So happy holidays. Yeah, it's a pretty exciting time. I, I love the holidays. And with this schedule, we'll be dropping an episode on Christmas Day. That'll be the next one I record. So maybe I'll do something a little special for that. But in today's episode, we're going to talk about traffic patterns and traffic pattern selection and runway selection with wind. So the FAA written might ask you questions on traffic pattern selection and, and runway selection. And to understand that, we have to understand traffic patterns. So most ground schools don't go into too much detail on traffic patterns because the FAA written exam doesn't ask specifically about traffic patterns. That's usually something you learn in flight training. But we do because we like to go the extra mile, as you guys know. So we're going to explain what traffic patterns are and then tell you how to determine you know what traffic patterns you should be using and all that good stuff so that's what we're going to do today i have a couple announcements one of the announcements is as you guys if you guys have been listening or following us the faa updated the faa written exam in 2023 so student scores dropped by like 10 to 15 percent all of a sudden in the spring of 2023 and everyone was kind of like what's going on and so i reached out to the faa the faa airman testing branch they do send out these announcements, but they can kind of be a little bit cryptic. So that's why I you know, reached out to them. And they said one of the th changes that they made is they reduced the time from two and a half hours to two hours. So with that, it kind of made sense. The reason sort of why they did that is because they didn't think you needed as much time because they're asking less multiple step questions, multiple step calculation questions. And this isn't being shared by anyone that took the test. This is straight from the FAA. It's actually illegal to share information on like a government FAA test. You know, you can't like share the questions and all that stuff, obviously. So this is straight from the FAA Airman Testing Branch themselves. They provided me this information. And so that includes like questions like, let's say, you know, cross-country planning question where you got to calculate the ground speed and then the distance and then measure, you know, on, on the chart. And then to get distance and then get some time and then use the time to calculate a new time or like use that ground speed to calculate 
a true airspeed or something where you just have multiple steps like that. They're still going to have calculation questions. It's just not going to be a lot of steps and multiple step included in that multiple steps is interpolation because that's another step you got to do. Right. So like if there's like a weight and balance, you used to see like a weight and balance where you'd have to interpolate between values. You won't see that anymore. You will st still a possibility. You'll see a weight and balance, still a possibility. You'll see a ground speed, you know, those type of cross country planning calculations. So you still got to prepare for them, but there's less of the tricky ones that involve multiple step questions. So if they're not asking those, they were asking, you know, four or five of those maybe on the exam. They're not asking those. What are they asking instead? And, you know, again, they can't share this information, but it's going to be more rote memorization questions, right? So they haven't updated their question bank. So same that, but we've updated our practice tests, our flashcards, our quizzes, all that stuff to have, you know, more rote memorization questions, less multiple step calculation questions to reflect what's happening. So in the spring of 2023, we saw our own students' grades drop by an average of about 10%. Still, luckily, everyone was passing, um, but we didn't like that. So we needed to kind of trial and error, figure out how to make our practice tests the same. So that's what we did, you know, make our practice tests as close to the real thing as possible. So we did that over the next four or five months or so. And now we're seeing scores averaging above 90% again for the exam. So it's matching. So if you take our practice tests and on the first attempt on those, first time you're seeing those, you get, you know, a 90. Chances are, unless you make some stupid mistakes, you're going to get a 90% as well. Now, if any test prep or ground school out there says that they know the exact questions, that is a lie or they're doing something illegal. Because as I said, you can't share the information. You can't get the information on these tests. But there's ways to kind of understand what the FAA is going to ask you. And that's the FAA source material, right? The FAR aim. You know, if you understand the FAR aim, the changes they're making, the focuses, the, the things they want to focus more on, their announcements, you know, talking to the airman testing branch, the PHAC, right? The airplane flying handbook, those type of documents that are the source documents that they grab all the, you know, when they come up with questions, they go to those documents. So, those are the answers in there, right? They provide you with them just in, you know, longer detail. And then it's our job to make it easy for you and come up with the questions to try and as best we can accurately reflect what's going to be on the real exam. So that's kind of a long winded explanation, but I think it's helpful for you guys to know how that all works and what, you know, if you heard about changes to the FAA, like what that was and how we at Part-Time Pilot have accommodated for that. So, so yeah, basically more rote memorization questions and stuff like that. All our stuff is updated now um, and we're seeing good results. So good job to our students and yeah. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about before we continue on is I want to do read a couple of reviews because I feel like it's been a while since we've done that. So there's a few, we've gotten some reviews that we should read off. And then I want to do a question, student question uh, that was asked in our Facebook study group. And so let's go ahead and do that. All right. So the first review I want to read off is from Jeffrey. It's five stars. The podcast is free, free in all caps. I started by listening to the free podcast Nick started. I appreciate how thoroughly each topic is covered. It's easy to move through one after the other. And if you need a refresher on a particular topic, the episode titles act as a chapter marker for you. I appreciate the work put into the podcast so much that I knew I would mesh with the online ground school. On top of that, 
Before I purchased, I reached out with a quick question and it got back to me extremely quickly with the information that I needed. Thank you for the review. Glad you are another person that realizes how quickly we get back to people. So it's something we strive to do. So thank you for the review very much. And the next one is five star. Believe the reviews. This is from the Schwartzel. So I'll be honest from the start. I haven't finished the school yet, but the whole reason why I chose part-time pilot was not just because of the affordability, but because of the content that I've already consumed has been amazing. Nick has produced so much free content through the podcast and YouTube videos that he sold the program to me on it. He's trusted. And when he talks about the success rate of their students and stands behind his product, I believe him. If you're looking into an online ground school, start here. Your search will be done. Thank you so much for the review. Both you guys, that's all I'm going to read today. Just those two. If you want to possibly get your review read on the podcast, you can leave the review at trustpilot.com. Just search part-time pilot. And you can, it's a review service. Or you can go, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, we would highly, highly appreciate if you left us a review there. It really helps us, you know, get to the top of their charts so more people can listen. So yeah, if you listen there, that would be great if you did that and much appreciated. So the one thing I wanted to mention with that, that last review, just to add on there, that uh, the source said he's trusted and when he talks about the success rate of the students and stands behind his product, I believe him. Well, I just want to give you guys an update. So a long time we... We hadn't even had a student not pass the written exam. It was something like 400 and something students in a row that passed. We didn't have a single fail, which was pretty cool. And I knew one day it, it would end. And well, it did. And it was kind of around the time when the FAA updated the test. We had a couple fails. We had two fails uh, and we worked with and we have a guarantee and that guarantee is if you do fail with our, you get an endorsement from us, you go through all, you know, our process to get you prepared for the written and you fail, we'll refund you the money. So we did that to both those students. And then we still worked with them to get them to pass on their next try. So that if that ever happens, that's what we'll do. We'll refund you and we'll still work with you because we really just ultimately want to provide value to you. And the value that you expect from us is to pass the test. So that's what we want to do. Ever since that update in the spring of 2023, we haven't seen anything like that. So now I used to, you know, tout the 400 or whatever in a row. Now I tout that our success rate is 99.99%. So still pretty good. But just had to throw that out there and give you guys an update on that. Because I want to be honest and not say that, you know, we're still going on that streak. Because it, unfortunately, it did end. But I knew it was coming eventually. Okay, so let's move on to a... Student question. So this comes from the Facebook study group, the online ground school study group dash part-time pilot. You can search for that in Facebook. Come join us. It's there's no dumb questions and it's got a there's like 5,000 or 6,000 members and it's just a mixture of students, instructors, you know, private pilots, instrument pilots. And so not only will we answer until you're happy with the answer, uh, but you're you're going to get different perspectives. So come on and join us in there on the Facebook study group. And also, if if you're thinking about joining our online ground school and you don't have Facebook, th that's okay. You'll still get your questions answered. You can email us or reach out to us on other social medias or whatever, whenever you want, and we'll get back to you ASAP. Okay, so this question is an interesting one. Basically, I'm kind of just going to summarize that, but this is the first one I looked into books, two-hour minimums for instructor and the plane. I asked what the typical amount of time would be in the air. And they said they try to get an hour. And so this student is wondering, well, is that standard that they would pay for two hours and only get an hour? 
in the air. And then the school also told them that, you know, when they questioned that, they said that some days they won't even fly and they'll just do groundwork. And so this student is asking, is that a red flag? So one thing that we always preach is to get a good understanding and get your ground school done out of the way first or early in your private pilot, you know, your flight training lessons. Because there's going to come a point in your flight training where you're going to need to understand certain things. And if you're thinking up there in the aircraft, it's going to affect your performance in the aircraft and you're going to end up making mistakes. When you make mistakes, your instructor is going to make you redo lessons or they're going to say, wow, you don't know the ground stuff. Let's go do ground training. Okay. So two things happen. When you redo lessons, lessons are expensive, right? It's like $250 to pay the instructor and for the plane. That's just an average, right? So that's expensive to redo lessons. We want to avoid that at all times when we want to try and save money. That's the main key to saving money in flight training is avoid redoing lessons. So that's the number one way to avoid that is to just be good at your ground knowledge before you get to that lesson, right? So the second thing is if your instructor sees that you don't know this stuff, you should know while you're in, on that flight lesson, let's say you're doing a flight lesson on navigation and you don't understand how to use VORs, for example, they're going to take your butt back to the hangar, sit you down and teach you how to use VORs. And now you're paying that instructor $50, $60, $70 an hour, whatever their rate is, to not even get any hours flying. So that's why we always say the best way to do it and the best way to not get burnt out with stress or financially is to do your ground school first. Get really good at your ground school. And that's why we go the extra mile on our ground school topics. We don't just prep you for the FA written. We prep you for your flight lessons so that you have... So you're never mentally behind the aircraft. So that's what we always preach. So I think this student is, you know, that kind of rubbed off on him. And now he's looking for flight schools and he has that in his mind. And he's asking if that's a red flag. And I think it could be. It doesn't necessarily have to be because, yes, it's true that there is required ground training, no matter how good you are on your ground knowledge or whether or not you've already passed your written. There are still things that you, with your instructor, are going to have to go over on the ground. One, your flight instructor has to make sure that you're competent enough with this knowledge before you go up. Two, there's things like flight preparation. Like if you're going on a cross-country flight, you have to go over your flight plan, right? You have to go over your lesson. Again, like you said, your instructor has to make sure you know these things. And then there's also post-flight briefs, required thing, and then or maneuvers. When you want to go and practice a maneuver, your instructor is going to talk to you about it first on the ground. That's all smart to do, right? That could take 30, 45 minutes, right? So I think you could expect, you know, especially on a new lesson where like a cross-country flight or new maneuvers, 30 minutes. Like, yeah, but there's ways, but you don't, what you don't want to do is you don't want to find a school that requires you to like do things that you really don't need to do. Let's say if you have great knowledge of all the stuff, the ground knowledge, and you've passed your FA written, you don't want the school forcing you to be on the ground redoing flight lessons. Now, there's a caveat. If it's a part 141, you have to take their ground school. So we're kind of only talking about part 61. And again, we recommend part 61 because of this flexibility and other flexibilities. But if it's a part 61 and they're saying, no matter how well you understand the ground knowledge, we're still going to require you to do ground school. That's the red flag, right? So it's not a red flag if they're going to sit you down and talk to you about the flight to come 
or makes you sure you do have an understanding of the ground knowledge, that's not a red flag. But it's a red flag if, you know, they're making you do their ground lessons when you already have a good understanding of it. And you might be thinking, well, why, why would they do that? Trust me, it happens if they have a lack of airplanes and they still need to give these flight instructors work. They might say, hey, you know, just do ground for the student on a day. And that is not fair for you, right? And so there's also ways, and trust me, I know it sounds horrible, but there's some out here, and I experienced this firsthand, that they kind of milk the student for their money, and they'll add in di- different requirements, like that additional stage checks. If you're a part 141, you have to do stage checks. If you're part 61, you do not. And so they might require you that you pass an exam. I passed the same exam like 10 times because they put some requirement on it. And even though I was part 61, it's just these additional requirements. I think if you have another option, another flight school that doesn't have these additional requirements, then that is the better option. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't know the ground because that's what we're all about. You have to know the ground. But if, and we're assuming that you take our ground school, you know, you have a really good understanding of the ground. You should look out for, you know, them making you redo stuff you already know or things like that. Like they should have your best interests and your your money at heart, right? So if you've already done all that stuff, they should know that you need to focus on flying and focus your funds and your time on that flight. So that's my little caveat about that. Uh, I thought it was a good question and something that people should look out for. Okay, so enough talking. Let's get to the lessons. Okay, if you're following along in the online ground school, which I highly recommend you do, because it has the visuals, the quizzes, the videos, all that stuff. We are in section 14 on airport operations, and this is your course, your step one private pilot lessons course. So go into that course, go to section 14 on airport operations, and we are on lesson nine on traffic patterns. So we're going to do that lesson, then we're going to do lesson 10, wind and traffic pattern selection. So let's go ahead and talk about lesson nine of section 14 on traffic patterns. When student pilots train at a specific airport, they will become very accustomed to the airport's traffic pattern and procedures. You may even get to know the voice of the controller on the other end of the radio. This familiarity is good for keeping your mind ahead of the aircraft, but that same familiarity can also be dangerous when visiting new airports where you aren't as familiar with its traffic pattern, communication style, and all that. Therefore, I want to detail not only the basics of all traffic patterns, but also how to prepare yourself for an unfamiliar airport's traffic pattern. Traffic pattern altitudes, or TPAs, are generally 1,000 feet above ground level. So 1,000 feet AGL, that's kind of the default TPA. You'll see that acronym a lot. So traffic pattern altitude. So 1,000 feet above AGL or above the runway's elevation, right? So it's usually like the touchdown zone elevation of the runway. So if the elevation of the airport's like 271 feet, then a general traffic pattern is probably 1,271 feet, right? MSL, so it's 1,000 feet above that. TPAs may differ from 1,000 feet AGL depending on obstacle clearances, terrain, or noise abatement procedures. So if there is like, you know, some housing around there and they don't want you flying real close to that, they may raise the traffic pattern altitude so that you're not buzzing over these homes. Or if there's, you know, a mountain or something like that, they may raise it up to like 1200 or or something like that, right? The TPA for each airport will be listed in the AFD chart supplement. If the TPA is not listed, the default is 1000 AGL. So if it's not listed, it can be assumed 
but it should be listed in the chart supplement. If it's not and you're kind of unsure, always just call the airport. They have a number. You can call them and make sure. So uh, you can also ask, you know, the tower when you're entering their airspace, you can ask them as well if you're unsure. If a TPA is not listed in the chart supplement for an airport with an elevation of 2340, then the TPA would be assumed to be 1,000 feet above that. So that would be 3,340. So if the elevation is 2,340 and you don't see a TPA listed, you can assume that it's 1,000 feet above that. So you can assume you're flying in that traffic pattern at 3,340 MSL. The standard or default traffic pattern direction is flown to the left. So standard traffic pattern is 1,000 feet AGL with left-hand turns. This means that aircraft will make left turns only when in the pattern. A non-standard traffic pattern or right turn pattern exists to avoid terrain, obstacles, noise abatement procedures, or other traffic. If the traffic pattern is not a standard left pattern, then it will be stated in the chart supplement and on the sectional or terminal area chart within the airport information. The designation for a right pattern as seen in the chart supplement or on a chart is RP. That stands for right pattern, right? So you might see that in the remarks section of the chart supplement, or you might see it above the remarks section where it lists each runway and it tells you the type of surface the runway, the lengths, the dimensions, and then it might say if it doesn't, it'll usually not list a direction if it's the default left traffic pattern. And if it's not, then it'll say like right traffic or RP. And on a chart, right, in the airport information box on a chart, at the very bottom end, you might see like RP724. That means right pattern for runway 7 and runway 24. So those are the two ways you can look for. Again, if you're not sure, just call them up and ask them. Again, if no runways are listed, then all runways at the airport follow the left pattern procedure. For example, if you were to see RP 8R, 26R on a sectional chart in the airport information section, this would tell you that runways 8 right and 26 right follow the right pattern procedure while all others follow the standard left pattern procedure. Next, I want to talk about the legs or parts of a traffic pattern, which are the upwind, crosswind, downwind, base, and final. Now, these are some people will be like, that's five, there's only four. Well, I included the upwind, which is the takeoff. So I'm assuming we're kind of, we're doing pattern work, right? We're doing touch and goes in the pattern. So we have five legs. Obviously, if you're just coming in to an airport from outside the airport, right? And you're not just staying in the pattern, you would usually come in on like downwind and then turn base to final. You would only probably do only three, but you may come in on the crosswind or something. So you may only have four. So it really depends on how you enter it. But in total, there are five if you include the takeoff part as the upwind and then the crosswind. So let's kind of talk about what each one of these are. So the upwind. Upwind is a climb out leg and is named as such because you will almost always be placed on a runway that takes off and lands in a headwind. So we take off into the wind. So that's why it's called the upwind. This is how they determine runway directions in the first place. They are strategically placed to face in line with the normal wind directions seen in that area. Headwinds increase the amount of air over your wings in a given ground distance, which effectively increases lift, right? And it's more dangerous to take off and land in a tailwind 
right? It increases your takeoff distance, increases your landing distance, stuff like that. So we always want to take off and land in a headwind. That's sort of how these runways are planned out, right? So a lot of the runways in the San Diego area take off and land to the west because in San Diego, it's by the ocean. And generally, not all the time, but generally we get winds coming from over the water into the land flowing. You know, the wind is coming from the west to the east. So we want to fly into that into the west. So that's why we usually take off and land. Now, I live right by San Diego International. And every day you can actually, you might be able to hear a airplane right now landing. It is landing to the west on runway, I think it's runway 27. So it's directly to the west. I would say about 90% of the time, that's the direction they're landing. And now when a different weather front comes in and it changes the weather, or there's some, you know, there are some obstacles with downtown San Diego real close. Point Loma is kind of an obstacle. There are some obstacles around. So if there's like cloud cover on one side or the other and there's no winds or the wind changes because of a specific higher low pressure system, then they will change it and they will actually take off and land to the east. But like I said, that's only about 10% of the time. So most of the time at airports are like this where there is a wind direction that is the majority of the time. That happens the majority of the time. So they can plan for that and point the runways in that direction. So this is exactly how they kind of come up with runway directions. Anyways, during the upwind, let's get back to upwind, pilots are required to continue flying on the imaginary extended center line of the runway in order to avoid collision with traffic in parallel runways or any obstacles and stuff like that. So it, again, it's all planned that when you take off on the upwind, you maintain an imaginary center line of the runway and you stay on that course. So if you're taking off on runway 27, like in our example, you want to maintain that heading 27. You know, that is your imaginary center line until, you know, you, you turn off of it or given clearance to turn off of it. Now, if you're in the pattern, let's say, again, we're in the touch and goes and you have clearance to make your turn. You know, sometimes in touch and go, they'll ATC, the tower might say, we'll call your crosswind, which means continue flying that center line until you hear ATC say turn to crosswind. But let's say you have clearance. Pilots should fly the upwind until they're about 300 feet below the traffic pattern altitude. So if our traffic pattern altitude is 1,000, you know, once you get to about 700, you can then start a gentle bank towards the crosswind, which is going to be 90 degrees to the left or right. In a standard pattern, we have left-hand turns, so that would be a 90 degrees turn to the left. If we're flying a heading of 270 on the upwind, you know, we take off 270, 90 degrees to the left is going to be turning to a heading of 180 for our crosswind. Crosswind is the leg following your climb out leg and begins when a pilot, again, like I said, if you have clearance, about 300 feet below the traffic pattern altitude. The turn from upwind to crosswind should be exact an exact 90 degree turn or heading change as we talked about. So like, for example, 270 to 180. During the turn to crosswind, the pilot should continue to climb to the traffic pattern altitude until the altitude is reached. So you're doing a turning climb. So you want to make sure you know, you're in a coordinated turn and you're maintaining a good, safe airspeed because when you're climbing and you're turning climb, you're adding load factor to your wings and all that stuff. And you could be increasing the stall speed if you go too steeply, could increase it too much. So you want to be careful and taking off and turning to crosswind 
can be a time where some pilots can get kind of relaxed, right? They can kind of be distracted too, right? Taking off in a lot of airplanes can be pretty easy, especially nowadays. Planes just naturally want to take off. So they can be pretty easy. You can just, you know, keep the yoke straight and then you can start doing checklist items. You can be talking to ATC. You can be thinking about your next move. Easy to become distracted. And there's actually FAA written question on this. What's a common power on flight maneuver where pilots can become distracted and stall? And that would be takeoff because, again, it's kind of a mundane thing for pilots. And if you haven't flown yet and you're like, why? That's mundane. Just wait until you start flight training. And you'll understand what I'm talking about. But so you're distracted and you're at a slow airspeed. So especially when you turn and you add that load factor, increase that stall speed, you got to watch out that and maintain, you know, you always want to fly the aircraft first. The crosswind leg is generally the shortest leg in terms of time. And then after the crosswind is the downwind. So the downwind in our example, if we had the upwind at 270, the crosswind at heading of 180, Crosswind again is 90 degrees. So we're assuming a left-hand pattern here in our example. So 270, left turn to 180 on our crosswind, left turn to our downwind on 090. So the downwind is the opposite direction of our upwind, obviously upwind, downwind. So we'll be flying with a tailwind, most likely. And in our example, that'll be would be 090 heading. So downwind is a leg following crosswind and is named as such because you will be flying with a tailwind with the wind. A turn to the downwind should begin once a pilot reaches approximately half mile from the runway centerline. And again, this is if you're not cleared and you kind of want to know some runways and airports may have, you know, specific instructions. And again, you would find this in the chart supplement. But this is we're talking about just kind of standard, assuming it's just a completely standard when I talk about these completely standard kind of pattern. But you want to look in the chart supplement. You want to follow ATC instructions. ATC, again, might say, I'll call your downwind. And that means you continue to fly the crosswind until they tell you to turn downwind. So that can happen a lot. So we're assuming we have clearance to turn downwind and we're assuming it's standard. But also in the chart supplement, you might see something because of obstacles or, you know, construction cranes or something that says don't turn downwind after one mile from east of runway or something like that. So. You want to check and know your airport conditions and the surroundings and what the airport is calling for in terms of traffic patterns, and then also follow ATC instructions. Again, when I say approximately, this is when you turn at this altitude and this distance or whatever, this is just assuming the standard. So I want to make that clear. In that standard example, be about a half mile from the runway center line. You turn from crosswind to your downwind, and you should be about at traffic pattern altitude by now. You should have continued climbing in your crosswind and you should be at traffic pattern altitude now so then you can turn to the downwind the turn from crosswind to downwind again should be exactly 90 degrees the downwind leg should be flown until the approach end of the runway where you took off is reached so you continue flying downwind until the approach end of the runway once past the runway threshold pilot will begin to configure for landing mean like reduce power add flaps etc change your airspeed or descent airspeed while still flying in the same heading. You don't want to turn to the next leg yet, which is base leg, quite yet at the runway threshold. You just want to have the general procedures. Again, for your airport environment, it may be different. The airport environment may require you to fly a longer downwind because of, again, traffic, obstacles, whatever, or ATC. A lot of times will say, I will call your base 
because there might be someone coming in, landing on a straight in final this couple miles away. They're number one for landing. They want them to pass first before you turn to base so that you don't collide with them. So they might say, I'll call your base. Um, or they might say, you know, you're number two, turn to base after number one for landing. And then you would want to make sure that you have that, that other aircraft that's in front of you on that straight and final site so that you know when you can turn after them. Again, if they're not in sight, you say, you know, looking for traffic. And then if you don't find them, still no traffic in sight, then ATC will probably say, I'll call your base, right? If you can't find them. Again, we're just talking about the general standard pattern and there's no issues with traffic or obstacles or anything like that when I talk about this. So you get to the runway threshold, you configure for landing, and then you would continue to fly and you wouldn't turn to base just yet. But during the downwind is usually when pilots will complete a landing checklist or any procedures required for landing. So you'd probably turn from crosswind to downwind. What I always do is I trim my aircraft right into the sight picture and the attitude that I want to have for the rest of my landing. So I trim that. I, I set the RPM to maintain my altitude, have that all set and trimmed in. And then I do my before landing checklist. So I'll do all that. And then by that time, I'm about halfway in my downwind by the time I'm done with that. And I wait for that threshold. Once that threshold hits, again, this is just a standard. It might be different at yours. You'll learn this with your flight instructor. But then I would start to think about configuring for landing and getting ready to turn to base. So the next one is the base leg. The base leg is the next leg of the pattern and follows the downwind. The turn to base should begin when the pilot's aircraft is at a 45 degree angle from the approach end of the runway. And again, this is just, we're just talking about our standard pattern here. So could be different for your airport environment and you'll learn that with your instructor. But the general rule is if you were to draw the start of the runway, right? The runway threshold, if you were to draw a line perpendicular to the runway direction out towards where you're at in the pattern and then angle that line 45 degrees more downwind, right when you're about a 45 degree angle. So you're looking over and again, we're in a left pattern. So you're, you're flying downwind. The runway is to your left. You're about a half mile away from the center line. And to our left, over our left wing, we see the runway threshold. We configure for landing, right? We start to our descent a little bit. And then once that we have to look over our left shoulder by about 45 more degrees. Once the threshold is about 45 degrees behind our left shoulder, then we would start our turn to base. And again, it depends on, I keep saying this because obviously you wouldn't do this if there was traffic or if ATC instructed you otherwise, you might have to continue your downwind, but let's just assume there's no traffic, there's no ATC, we're just, we're at an uncontrolled airport and there's no obstacles whatsoever in the middle of Kansas and the plains and this is kind of the general rule. So the turn from downwind to base should, again, be exactly 90 degrees. So in our example, where we took off on runway 27, we turned to crosswind to a heading of 180. We turned to downwind to a heading of 090. You guessed it. Our turn to base would be to a heading of 0 or 360. would be due north. So we turn to base on due north. And during the base, the pilot will continue to descend. And then depending, again, on your aircraft or the procedure you may add one more notch of flaps here. That's kind of standard. So you add another notch of flaps and continue with your descent here on base until you get to the time to turn to final. So let's go to the next leg. That's the final leg. So final leg begins when the pilot determines a turn from base is required in order to not overshoot the runway. 
Another imaginary center line extended from the runway can be used to determine where the turn from base should end. The turn from base to downwind should be exactly 90 degrees. Again, so in our example, we turn from downwind of, we're on heading of 090 on downwind, turn to due north to zero degrees for our base. And then we're gonna turn back onto our runway heading where we started to a heading of 270. So from north to two seven to west, 270, that's 90 degree turn to the left. Again, we're in the left standard left pattern here in our example. So it should be an exactly 90 degree turn heading change, completing the full 360 degree loop of the pattern back to the runway's heading. During final, the pilot should turn their focus completely to landing the aircraft and maintaining the center line throughout the entire final leg until touchdown. So in the final, right, you may, once you turn to final, you kind of want to judge it. And this takes practice of when to start your turn, right? You see the center line and then you'll kind of judge when you need to start your turn. You want to avoid overshooting. Again, this is another dangerous time for pilots because we're slow. We're configured for landing. We have flaps in and, you know, our airspeed is getting down there. We're every step from base to final, you know, as we add flaps and stuff, we're trying to slow down more and more for landing. So we're slow. And if you overshoot, right, if you overshoot, you may try and correct and turn too much. And now you're at too steep a bank and you're Again, when you have a steep bank, your load factor increases, which increases your stall speed. And if you're already slow, that could cause the stall speed to exceed your speed. And you could stall in a really, you're low, you're slow. So it's a really dangerous position. So one good way to avoid that is just to do stable, configured turns, gentle turns into final and really kind of practice that with your instructor to make sure you're hitting that center line, you're not overshooting, overcorrecting or anything like that. And if you do, never be afraid to just go around, right? If you feel any urge that you need to overcorrect to get onto that final to make this a good landing, one, don't do that. Just take your time to get onto that final on, you know, gentle banks. And if it takes too long to do that with gentle banks, then just go around, add power and go around. Okay. So just remember that you're in a dangerous, slow, slow and low situation. So you want to just only do gentle banks if you can. And if that's going to take too long to get yourself centered and fixed, then just go around. So in final, right, we'll probably add another flaps. We'll probably reduce power. Again, depends on your aircraft, depends on how your flight instructor will teach you. A lot of times if you're on glide slope, right, you add that final thing of flaps. You, when you add that last flaps, you'll kind of balloon up a little bit because the flaps add kind of more lift. So let that settle. See how you are after you add flaps for about a few seconds see where you're at on the glide slope. If you're right on glide slope, you know, you want to slowly kill power, maybe leave a little bit in or completely remove power and just glide right down in uh, into your landing and flare. So yeah, that's all stuff that you are going to work on with your flight training. Again, we just kind of go the extra mile in our ground school to give you an idea of what kind of to understand. So that's why we wanted to go through what a traffic pattern kind of looks like. Now, there are also specific traffic pattern procedures that must be followed when arriving at or departing an airport. To be sure of exact procedures, see the AFD chart supplement. The default procedure for entering a traffic pattern depends if the tower is controlled or not. For a controlled towered airport, a pilot traffic pattern entry procedure will be determined by the tower. This might be asked on the FA written. It might say, how do you enter a traffic pattern or some sort of words like this at a controlled tower? If it's controlled, the tower is going to tell you how to enter the traffic pattern. The tower will decide how a pilot will enter based upon traffic, terrain, and a pilot's location. 
The tower may have a pilot enter a pattern straight into a final leg. They may ask for an entry into the base leg or downwind as well. At an uncontrolled or non-towered airport, or when not otherwise directed by ATC, a pilot's traffic pattern entry must comply with any FAA traffic pattern established for the airport. So again, that would be found in the chart supplement. The chart supplement could say, you know, if it's an uncontrolled airport or if it's a towered airport, but the tower is not operational, so it becomes an uncontrolled. It might say in that chart supplement to enter, you know, all aircraft should enter pattern, you know, on 45 degree on the down leg or on final. It might say that. So again, the chart supplement should be understood for any airport a pilot is flying into. Okay, so at an uncontrolled airport, if there is no FAA established procedure, like in the chart supplement, then the pattern entry should be made at a 45 degree angle into the downwind leg of the pattern at the TPA. This is not only allows the pilot maximum visibility of the pattern for other traffic, but also allows good visibility of the pilot's aircraft for others in the pattern. So in our example, right, we had a downwind on 090 heading, right? So aircraft in the downwind have the, the runway to their left, they're heading straight east. If we want to enter that, we want to do it at a 45 degree angle. So on a heading of 045, right, we come in at 045, kind of pointed straight at the midway point of the runway. And just kind of once we hit about half mile from that center line, do a gentle turn into the heading of 090 to enter onto that downwind leg. And then again, that would give you good visibility to see aircraft ahead of you or behind you. And this is the same procedure that you would do if you're at a towered airport, but you lost communications. You would circle outside of the traffic pattern, wait for that light signal. If that light signal was a green, gave you the green light to enter the pattern and come in for landing, that's how you would enter the pattern. So at a 45 degree to the downwind. The default procedure for departing a traffic pattern also depends whether the airport is controlled or not. At a controlled towered airport, a pilot's departure procedure may be requested by the pilot, but will be determined by the tower controller. The tower will decide how a pilot will depart based upon traffic, terrain, and the pilot's desired direction of departure. The tower may direct the pilot to depart straight out along the upwind, on a 45 degree from the upwind, on a crosswind, or even on the downwind. So you can request it. You can say, you know, in our example, you want to take off runway 27 and request downwind east departure. And they may say, yes, go ahead. Or they may say something else. So you can request it. But ultimately, whatever ATC says at a towered airport, that's what you got to do. At an uncontrolled or non-towered airport, or when otherwise not directed by ATC, a pilot's traffic pattern departure must comply with any FAA traffic pattern established for that airport, again, from the chart supplement. If there is no FAA established pattern, then, and I want to add, whenever I said the chart supplement, add NOTAMs to that. So you would always want to check the NOTAMs as well. I should have been mentioning this. So chart supplement is like the standard procedures and, and kind of rules and situation of the airport notams are updates to that so there might be a notam in effect for your airport and this is part of your pre-flight planning you always want to check the notams before flight and a notam may change you know a pattern procedure so i want to throw that caveat in to always check your notams and that's part of the requirement for you know pre-flight planning always checking okay i just wanted to throw that in there but if there is no fa established pattern you know, or no notum or whatever, then the pattern departure should be made straight out on upwind or, so again, in our example, a runway 27, we continue that center line, 27, we don't turn crosswind and we just continue out on two, heading of 270 to exit, exit the pattern or at a 45 degree angle from upwind to the side of the traffic pattern direction. So again, in our example, we had a left pattern. So we take off on runway 27, we maintain that 
on upwind, that heading of 270. And then we would turn to a 45 degree to the left because it's left towards the left, towards the pattern direction. So 45 degree to the left would be runway 225. So we would, or sorry, not runway 225, heading 225. So we turn to a 225 and we just exit the pattern that way until we're clear, right, of all of our aircraft, then we could turn to whatever our flight plan tells us to do, right, at an uncontrolled uh, tower. All right, so we have a example here. So I've talked about an example of a left pattern, and that's what we show here in in the ground school. We have a, a picture of a left pattern here, and we kind of mention all the things I said on the general you know, what to do in a traffic pattern to configure for landing. That's totally general. Again, it might change, but this is kind of the general, you know, you fly half mile away, about 90 knots on downwind. Then you, then you kind of at threshold, you configure for about 80 knots. You know, you lower the, you lower your power to about 60% power. You add one notch of flaps, you trim for 80 knots. And then at about 45 degree angle from the threshold, you want to turn to base when you're turning to base, you kind of want to add a second notch of flaps, and then you want to configure for about 70 knots. And this is in like a, you know, a Cessna 172 or Cherokee Warrior. These are about the speeds. These are general speeds. Again, going to change and be specific to your aircraft and how your flight instructor wants to teach you. But again, these are just kind of generic things. Then when you get uh, pretty close to the runway center line, you'll want to turn in, make sure you don't overshoot to the runway center line. And that, that's kind of going to be about 500 feet AGL about and two thirds into the base leg about you'll turn to final and you'll add the last notch of flaps on final. Let that kind of settle out. Then configure for your landing airspeed, your approach airspeed, which is again, for those types of trainer aircraft, usually between 60 and 65 knots. And then you would reduce power further to, you know, whatever you need to do to land. Sometimes it's all the way out. Eventually you want to have power all the way out for a good landing. If there's wind and other things, then you might won't keep pattern power in a little bit, but your flight instructor will teach you all that. Okay. The last thing I want to talk about in a little bit more detail is arrivals and departures at uncontrolled airports. So arrivals and departures into towered controlled airports will be determined by air traffic control. For uncontrolled airports, there are standard procedures that common traffic should all follow. This ensures that all pilots are on the same page and all following the same set of rules in the pattern. So entering the pattern and exiting the pattern, for example. Entering a pattern at an uncontrolled airport, a pilot should do the following. So announce your position and intentions on the CTAF frequency 10 nautical miles prior to the airport. Announce again 5 nautical miles prior. Announce position and intentions on CTAF to enter the downwind leg again at, and then enter the downwind leg at a 45 degree angle. If there's other traffic in there, you want to communicate and coordinate with them. Standard traffic pattern altitude again is 1,000 feet AGL unless otherwise listed in the chart supplement. And again, standard traffic pattern direction is left unless otherwise listed. Then you want to announce position and intentions on CTAF to turn to base and to turn and on your turn to final for landing. And then once you land, wherever you want to taxi, you also want to transmit your intentions and what you're going to do on the CTAF frequency. During a departing a pattern at an uncontrolled airport, a pilot should comply with any FAA traffic pattern for that airport as listed in the chart supplement for that airport. If there are any specific instructions for departure at this airport listed in the chart supplement, these instructions must be followed. Or again, caveat in the notams, announce position and intentions upon departure and climb out. If the pattern is left traffic, then a departure should be made straight out on the upwind of the pattern or at a 45 angle from the upwind to the left. 
Announce position and intentions upon departure and climb out. Again, on the CTAF. And if it's a right pattern direction, then you would either depart on the upwind or depart on the upwind 45 degrees to the right. So again, we have a picture showing all this with kind of notes and stuff on it, showing the, the angles, the aircraft, the pattern, the, the runway, all that stuff. And then we also have one for the, you know, the pattern stuff and configuring your aircraft for landing and all that stuff. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to the next lesson. This one took a little bit longer than I thought, but the next lesson is going to add in the wind and how you would determine where you're going to land with wind if ATC Tower is not there to tell you which runway to land on. All right, wind and traffic pattern selection. This is lesson 10 of section 14 in the online ground school. When landing at an airport, we all know that it is important to fly into the wind. A strong crosswind can make for an extremely dangerous landing, and a strong tailwind can make for an extremely long landing and also dangerous landing. If you fly into a towered airport, you are required to get the latest local METAR with wind conditions. But what if you are landing at an airport without a METAR or weather station, or winds change a lot? They can change within a second. METAR might not be the most up-to-date information when you're actually coming down to land. In this scenario, airports will usually provide you with a windsock, or wind tetrahedron somewhere on the field. You can find out if an airport has one and where it is in relation to the runways in the chart supplement AFD for that airport. So in our section on chart supplements, there's a little airport diagram. It'll show you on that diagram where the wind socks or wind tetrahedrons are located at. So you can find out when, so when you're overflying the airport, let's assume this is an uncontrolled airport. So a good procedure when you're coming into an uncontrolled airport is to overfly it first. So above traffic pattern altitude, you know, announce your communications of what altitude you're at and you're going to overfly it and take a peek at the windsock to get an idea of where the wind is coming from. On top of that, you can ask ATC. So the flip side of that, where you're at a controlled airport, sometimes ATC will just tell you what the winds are right before they give you clearance to land. If they don't, you can ask them and they'll tell you the current up-to-date wind. So towered airport's pretty easy. Um, but it's also good to know how to locate a windsock and how to read a windsock. Upon arrival at the airport, you can overfly the field. So again, we're assuming an uncontrolled airport. 500 feet or more above the traffic pattern altitude to look for what the windsock or wind tetrahedron is doing. This will give you an idea of what wind you will be working with during landing, and you can choose the runway that will, would provide you with the most headwind. A windsock lies limp with no wind. So again, a windsock is usually orange and white. So it's like orange section, white section, orange section, white section. And it's basically sort of like a long tube sock or like those inflatable long-armed tube guys at like car dealerships, right? <laughs> sort of like just the body or the leg of that guy, right? It's like made out of like some sort of vinyl that can catch the wind. And it's on a pole. We have a picture here in the online ground school. You can also Google it. But we have a picture here and it's just so there's just a pole. And then at the end of the pole, just like a flag pole is this tube of like vinyl or whatever, and it's sectioned orange and white. So it's like striped orange and white to be very visible. And when there's no wind, that's just going to lay limp against the pole, right? It's not going to be have any air in it. It's gradually inflated with stronger and stronger wind. So as you get wind, it's going to start to fill up with air and it'll start to kind of become erect, right? And if you had a full wind, that would be, you'd have a, the whole sock would be perpendicular to the pole that it's on. It would be fully full of air and just directly erect perpendicular to the pole. If there's like, so that would be a real strong wind where it's fully erect. If it's like just kind of a light wind, it might just be 
the first one or two sections might be kind of erect and then the rest would still kind of be limp. You can kind of see it's like half inflated or whatever like that. So a straight erect windsock generally indicates more than 15 knots of wind. So if the whole thing is erect and full of air, then that's more than 15 knots of wind. A windsock at a 30 degree angle between its support pole and parallel to the ground. So it's like, you know, so no wind, it's just lying flat against the pole. So if it's 30 degrees from the pole, third of the way from being fully erect, that would indicate approximately six degrees of wind. And then a flapping or fluctuating windsock indicates gusty wind conditions. So if it's going from erect to, to not erect, to erect, you know, that those are kind of gusty situations. And then you can kind of judge by how much of the sock has erect. You know, fully erect is like about 15 or more knots. And then if it's like half, you know, that would be about half of 15. You kind of do that kind of math. A third is about, you know, five or six knots. And then two thirds would be like 10 or 11 knots. So you kind of give, do a little interpolation, you know, guesstimation using that. Now, the windsock points away from the wind. In other words, if the wind is 15 knots from 270, you would see the windsock almost straight and pointing in the opposite direction or 090 as seen in the example below. So we have wind here coming from the left and the windsock is pointing to the right, right? So the wind is going to fill it up, fill up this windsock and point it in the direction opposite of where the wind is coming from. It's going to point in the direction the wind is going, but we always talk about the winds from where they're coming from so that when we land, we know where the wind's coming from. If the, you know, if the winds are coming from the west and we're landing to the north, we know the winds are coming from the west and we're going to have a crosswind. So that's why we always talk about wind, where winds are coming from and not the direction they're blowing in. So the sock is going to point in the direction it's blowing in. That means it's coming from the opposite direction. So just something to kind of remember. Now, a wind tetrahedron is like, it's almost like a triangle, almost like half a pyramid. So if you take like, you know, the pyramids in Egypt and cut it in half, kind of what it looks like. And again, it's kind of made of vinyl and it's real light and it's on this and it can rotate around this swivel, around this center point with the wind. And so it's going to, and we again, we have a picture of this because it's kind of hard to, to articulate in just words, but a wind tetrahedron points into the wind. So the pointy part of that triangle, the point of that triangle, the half pyramid is going to point into the wind and it's going to rotate itself so that the pointy part is pointed into the wind and then the wider part of the tetrahedron is pointing in the direction that the wind is going to, right? The opposite direction that the wind is coming from. So when you see this from above, it looks like just like a point, you know, like a triangle with the point pointed at the direction of the wind. So that's kind of nice because if you're overflying in and it's pointing to the west, you know, the triangle, the pointy part's pointing to the west, you know that the wind's from the west. And that's kind of opposite of the windsock, right? If you're overflying it and the windsock is pointing to the west, then that's the wind is actually coming from the east. So just a couple things to remember. Wind tetrahedrons regions are very rare. They're big and bulky. Usually you always will see a windsock. So there's not too much to worry about with tetrahedron. Just I would focus on understanding how a windsock works. And I I think there actually is a, there might be an FAA written question on the tetrahedron. So you will want to remember that actually. I take that back. So just a couple things to remember that how those differ. Okay, so windsock cones and tetrahedrons will sometimes be installed on pavement with markings surrounding the, you know, the windsock or tetrahedron so that when viewed from above can give you information on what runway to land on and which traffic pattern to land with. 
These markings with a wind cone can be seen below in the figure. So we're talking, we have a figure, and this is straight from the FAA written exam, the testing supplement. So you might actually see this at an airport where it's going to have a, like a windsock, and it's going to be surrounded by markings for all the runway. And so it kind of is a tool to see, okay, which direction the wind is coming from in relation to all these runways and traffic patterns. In this figure, if you're looking at it, it looks like you have a windsock with four L's around it, okay? And the markings are L-shaped where the leg or small part of the L, right? So the, the bottom part that comes off a capital L we're talking about is the traffic pattern or base leg of the traffic pattern. And the long part of the L is the runway, the final part, the final leg of your traffic pattern. So if you think of that, so if the L is positioned such that from the small part to the large part, it takes a right turn, then you know it's a right pattern. If from the small part, so you always want to find the end of the small part of the capital L and travel the length to the other side of the L. That's all you want to do. And just notice which direction you are taking, you know, your turns in that L. So as you follow along the L, act like you're drawing the L starting from the bottom part. Okay, so if we write a capital L, right, the bottom right part, most part of that L, that's the part I want to, I want you to start at. And then I want you to draw that L and whichever direction your pen goes, that's the direction of the traffic pattern. So they can flip these L's so that, that, that they're opposite of what how we normally write them, or they can flip them different directions in these patterns. So it might be, so in how we normally write an L, I'm really trying to, to articulate this uh, without a visual. So how we would normally write a capital L, we start at the bottom right, we would follow that to the left, and then take a right turn up the main part of the L. So that would indicate, because we went our base leg, first, and then took a right turn onto final, that would indicate a right pattern for that runway. Okay. But it might be flipped horizontally. It might be opposite that where we start on the little part, you know, the end of the L, the bottom part of the L is on the left, right? When we travel the length of the L, we take a left turn up and that would be a left pattern. So always find the, the little part of the L, the end of that, and then kind of act like you're drawing it and which direction are you turning? Are you turning left or are you turning right? That tells you the traffic pattern. So in this figure, we have the runway on top. It has, if we follow the little part of the L and then go down onto final, it's a right pattern. The one to the right of the windsock, it has, again, we follow the little part of the L, a right turn onto final. If we do the, the runway marking below the windsock, if we start at the little part of the L and draw the rest of the L, it's going to do a left turn to the main part of the L. So that's a left turn from base to final. So that's a left pattern. And then we, for the runway to the left of the windsock, again, it would be a left pattern if we're redrawing our L from the end of the L. So in this example, we have starting from the top, we're basically going top, right, bottom, left. We have runway one at the top is right pattern. Runway two to the right is right pattern. Runway three at the bottom is left pattern and runway four to on the left is left pattern. So in this example, we have a windsock that is pointed to the southeast. So it's pointed to the, the southeast. We're assuming that north is straight up in this picture and it even shows that on the FA exam diagram. So in this picture, we have the windsock pointing to the southeast. So we know the wind is coming from the opposite of that. So the wind is coming from the northwest. So which 
an FAA written question is which runway would we choose? If we overflew this diagram and we saw the windsock pointing to the southeast and we saw these different runway options for us, which one would we want to choose? Okay, so the wind is coming from the northwest. So that means we would want to land into the north for a headwind or into the west. Ideally, we would want a runway into the straight to the northwest, but we don't have that. So we want either into the north or into the west. So then we look at which final legs of our L's are pointed to the north or to the west. And that would be the one at the bottom of the figure. That was our third runway, runway three, or the one to the right of the figure, which was runway two. So runway two has a right a turn from base, a right turn from base to final. So it's a right pattern from base to final to due west, landing due west. So that would be, we would have a slight crosswind from the winds from the northwest landing into the west. Or runway three at the bottom has a left pattern, turn from base, left turn from base onto final, straight to the north. So we would have a crosswind off to our left from the northwest landing to the north. So we could choose either one of those options on the FA written exam in this in the example. Usually A, B, C, your answer options will just have one of those. So either one of those, and it, you, you'll want to know what pattern direction it is and which direction it is. So in this example, we would want to land on runway like 27, which is into the west, right? Or land on runway 0 or 36, which is to the north. We would land into the west or the north. And if we're landing into the west, that would be with a right pattern because of the shape of the L around this figure. And if we're landing to the on the runway to the north, that would be a left pattern, again, because of the shape of the L. So difficult to do this one in just words. So please go in and check out that figure. And I have the, the arrow for the wind to show you where the wind's coming from. And it kind of makes a lot more sense when you understand exactly when you can see what, what I'm talking about. The last thing I want to do is you might get a figure that doesn't tell you on the FAA written exam that doesn't tell you which direction is north. And in that are what direction the, the runways are. The answer options will be like, you know, runway 27 and runway 09, something like that. You can assume that straight up on these figures is north, straight down is south, straight to the right is east, straight to the left is west, unless otherwise indicated on the figure. So if there's no like thing, saying, you know, this is north, this is south, this is west, or whatever, then you can assume that up on your paper on the figure is north, down is south, right is east, left is west. So that's it. That's kind of how you determine. You you always want to fly into the wind, so you want to first understand where the wind's coming from, then determine which runway would give you a landing into the headwind, the most headwind, and then you want to determine which traffic pattern that runway has, and there you go. You know where your pattern is and what direction you'll be landing. All right. Well, that's it. This is a little bit longer than I expected, but as always at Part-Time Pilot, we want to go a little bit more into the deets, into the details and give you, you know, the full understanding so you can be not only past your written, but be ready for those flight lessons. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. And next episode is Christmas. So I hope everyone has a fantastic holiday, whatever you celebrate. And I will talk to you then.
Hey pilots, this is Nick. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast, you may have heard us talking about core aviation headsets and how with the coupon code part-time pilot, you can get 10% off and free shipping. Well, I just wanted to let you know that that got better. You can now get 15% off and free shipping. So an extra 5% off on core aviation headsets. These are a fantastic beginner headset. Now I say beginner just because they are at a beginner price. You know, when we're starting off with flight training, we want to keep all our funds for flight training because it is so expensive. And this gives us that affordable option to do that. But then it's not exactly a beginner headset because I have still had my core aviation headsets that I got way back when, when I was a student pilot. It's almost five years ago. It's still working great and I've had zero problems with it. So with that 15% off now, use coupon code part-time pilot. I'll put a link in the show notes. But with that you get 50% off, you get free shipping. You can get your very own headset for I think less than $100 still. So, and or you can get their more advanced headset for less than $200. That is a steal and it is way better than sharing those sweaty old headsets that have issues and connection issues at your flight school. So, go ahead and check out Core Aviation headsets and use code part-time pilot. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot now of course it's not that we're not thinking but it's that we understand things like weather aerodynamics what our instruments are telling us what atc is telling us we have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them and when we don't have to think about them we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations if we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft 
when this happens, if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gained, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices. Have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts the way we explain things in plain written English and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.